Section 15 of The Heirloom. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Christopher Collins. The Heirloom by T. Duthy Lyle. The Shadow of Death. As poor Jules Massey, in the very safe keeping of those two officers of the law, drove through the bright summer morning sunshine freshened by the morning breeze, and as he was able to collect his scattered thoughts, it was with emotions differing widely from his ordinary self-importance that usually before he had often taken that same drive. Somebody has said, and said perhaps shrewdly, however few there may be who will endorse the opinion expressed, that it is better to be a millionaire's friend than to be the millionaire. However far this may be an error of judgment, or however true or untrue it may be, it is certain that the personage in office who has the paying away of a millionaire's small cash, and especially in such amounts as the late master of Vernwood squandered, and the management of the millionaire's minor affairs, whether that personage be black-skinned or whether his skin be white, and probably even if his skin were blue, is the object of the respectful attention, nay, almost the adoration, of a very large and admiring circle of his immediately surrounding world, his friends are not few. Besides, Jules Massey, especially as Bertram Gnault had grown in wealth and importance, had become the mouthpiece, the avant-courier, and the great man of his master, a great man almost greater in some senses than the great man himself. Many times before had Jules Massey traversed that road, but it was in all the dignity and importance of his high estate. And verily it must be confessed that the cloak of Jules' dignity became him well. He had been no low-toned, grovelling, cringing underling, Jules Massey Esquire was a gentleman's gentleman in the highest and most important, as well as in the blackest degree, who enveloped himself, in proportion to the ebon blackness of his skin, with those petty and pretty high and mighty manners which we call heirs. As long as such an individual can maintain his footing on the summit of that slippery eminence, the topmost pinnacle of the Temple of Fame, the sinusure of those who gaze up at the dizzying height with admiring eyes, he is a very great personage indeed. But let him once slip, those very admirers remark, I told you so. And then lo, very great indeed is his fall. Formerly, as with his master's well-appointed equipage, he had rolled along that road, which now he traversed in such different state. As he cast his eyes around him, it seemed to him almost as if he had regarded all the surrounding property, all those bright green woods, all those smiling pastures, all those cosy well-kept homesteads, almost as if in a certain sense his own, But now, in one half-hour, in one magically marvellous turn in the kaleidoscope of events, how sadly and woefully had all this been changed. Jules wondered now what earthly, demoniacal sprite could, for that one short half-hour, have tempted him from his sick master's bedside. On arriving at their destination, which was the local police station, the three men, Jules and his two custodians, alighted. Mr Superintendent Whittier, from the rough treatment which he had received at the paws and jaws of Monk, mauled, begrimed and crestfallen, clad in little but tatters and rags, became the central object of curious regard. Here, at the police station, instead of the luxurious appointments of Vernwood, Jules, after undergoing certain preliminary formalities peculiar to the situation, was shown quite civilly into an apartment of the massive coal stone building called a cell, of the regulation dimensions containing just so many superficial feet of God's earthly space, and just so many cubic feet of God's free air, as is apportioned by Her Majesty's prison commissioners to each of their unwilling and unwelcome guests. 
Within two hours of Jules Massey's arrest, Mr Lumley arrived at Vernwood. That astute lawyer, instead of coming to Vernwood Village Station as instructed, having just posted twenty miles across a hilly country, in order in his own wisdom, as he believed, to shorten his journey, had travelled from London by a newly conceived route of his own devising, and losing thereby about fifteen hours in point of time. Had Mr Lumley followed the instructions of those he knew, he should have arrived at Vernwood the night before. Had he done so, the Vernwood tragedy might never have been perpetrated, and this story might never have been told. Such is an illustration of the way in which trivial obstacles or trivial blunders may alter the course of great events. Mr Lumley's white face blanched whiter and whiter to a deathly pallor as he listened to the cold horrors of the bloody tale. When, however, he had to be told of the arrest of Jules Massey, his indignation became intense. He would as soon have believed in the guilt of his closest friend, and his legal mind saw the weakness of the case. He had known Jules Massey as a servant of the murdered man for years, and was it conceivable, he asked, that after a lifetime of faithful, devoted servitude, he should turn upon and murder his master in cold blood? Was it possible, he urged, that a person of Jules Massey's mild, gentle disposition could have perpetrated so diabolical a crime? Was it possible, Mr Lumley asked, that the unpractised hand of Jules Massey could have accomplished so complete a butchery without staining himself with one drop of blood? The very proposition he maintained was too absurd. Hour by hour, like other days, the dismal day of Bertram Gnold's murder dragged through. Although at the time of his murder, Bertram was under constant medical care, although he might have died if he had not been murdered, yet there was no question as to the cause of death. His poor body had been butchered, with a skilfulness which, if I may so express it, would, if he had been endowed with them, have cut off twenty lives. In due course, a post-mortem examination was made by medical men of the remains, and those last officers were duly and decently performed which, previous to interment, are, by the living, accorded to the dead. In a kind of semi-state the remains were laid in the great entrance hall, around which the grim armoured effigies upon their marble pedestals grasped their tall lances in their iron-bound hands, and seemed to bow their heads and lower their drooping pennons, as though they mourned over the raised catafalque and over the restful presence of the dead. Of the hundreds of those whom Bertram Gnault employed and fed, who delved and toiled in his mines, who laboured on his lands, who administered to his wants or benefited by his generosity, whether from far or near, all who desired were permitted to look a last look upon his face as it reposed in death. One by one, a solemn grave-faced awe-stricken multitude, they filed past the bier, a melancholy train. There, in death, lay the remains of what once had been Bertram Gnault, his face evincing as it lay there no signs of pain, even it seemed almost placid, considering the violence of his end. It was a face of marked and noticeable intellectual power, nay sometimes as it was gazed upon in its long, long sleep, there seemed to light upon it that almost mocking smile. The long, pointed, well-tender moustaches stood as carefully arranged and as rigid as they had been in life, while upon the side of the right cheek there was the mark which he had borne from his birth, and which he was bearing too, now so near his grave. One hand, the left, alone was visible, and rested passively across his chest, one long white hand, one finger of which was still, as it lay there, encircled with the massive sapphire ring. We have said that the face was strangely tranquil, for his wounds were mostly in the body, and as he lay there in the solemn state of death, all the violence which had been wrecked upon the living, as far as possible, was concealed beneath the spotless drapery which shrouded the remains of the dead. At last those days, 
those sad, dark, dreary days came to an end, when the eyes of the living may be no longer suffered to linger over the remains of the loved that are dead. Then, as he had mourned for others, he himself was mourned. As he himself had caused others to be carried, he was carried forth. Out into the bright warm sunshine that he had once enjoyed, where all nature ceased not to smile even on the cortege of the dead. They bore him out over the great wide lawn, where the chaste white marble fountains glistened in the sunlight, and the light summer breezes trifled with the flowers. Then over the broad river did the solemn cortege wend its way, over the broad river where in happy days he had loitered and lingered with his love. Silently by the dower house they toiled up the winding hilly road, up to the hilltop where weird and solitary and remote the mausoleum stood among the trees, where it stood in the grove of tall beech trees as they gently bowed their heads, and the yew trees lent their sombre shadows, and the avenues of cypress seemed to guard the tombs. It was here that they laid the remains of Bertram Gnolt down to rest. End of section 15